I'd invite you to turn in God's Word to um, Luke chapter 2. I had to remember where we were going. Luke chapter 2, the same passage that Matt read from just a little bit ago. And if you don't have a Bible and want to use one of the ones in the seats in front of you there, it's going to be either page 805 or 857. We have two different uh, copies of Scripture throughout the uh, rooms, and so it's going to be one of those, either 805 or 857. Again, it's also on the insert uh, there on your bulletin if you'd like to look at that. But we're going to be looking at good news of great joy uh, from a portion of the passage that Matt read. And so in a moment, I want to read again verses 8 to 14 from Luke chapter 2. And we're going to focus this morning especially on verse 10 and that sublime announcement from the angel about good news of great joy. So let's hear again this passage beginning in verse 8. Uh, the living word of our living God. And I'll read through verse 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And this is God's word. Let me lead us in prayer again. Our Father, you tell us here a story of breathtaking beauty, splendor and life and hope and joy. But oh, how we need you to open our eyes to see the fullness and the richness of this good, good news. And beyond all of the things that we may experience this Christmas season, so many of which are kind gifts of your common grace, Father, please cause us to fully taste and to see for ourselves the great joy of your life-giving gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please work by your Spirit through your Word for your good purposes in all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I think we all know what it is like to receive good news of great joy. Such news as you got the job, or you got the raise, or you passed the class, or you won the contest, or news like they're engaged, or she's pregnant, or it's a boy, or it's a girl, or breakfast is served, <laughs> or it's nap time. But not now, not now. It's not nap time right now. But we understand what it is to receive good news that brings great joy, certain aspects of joy. But of course, we also know what it's like to receive bad news of great sorrow, don't we? News like, you're fired, or it's over, I'm leaving you, or the vacation has been canceled, or the disease is terminal, or he's dead, or she's dead. 
We understand these things, and I would guess that most of us over this past year have probably experienced a mixture of both the thrill of good news as well as the anguish of bad news. And if you think about it, all of the examples of good and bad news that I just mentioned, which of course are just a few among many examples we could note, all of these things that do impact us deeply, but yet they all relate to temporal life on this earth and our experiences in this life on this earth. But in Luke chapter 2, the good news of great joy that is proclaimed by an angel from heaven It is that which carries eternal significance. And this is transcendently good news, far surpassing the best possible earthly news that we could ever imagine. And therefore, this heavenly good news brings indescribably, inexpressibly, infinitely great joy for those who receive it. This is the best possible news resulting in the greatest possible joy. But of course, this begs the question, why? Why is this good news so good? And why is it so joy producing? Well, what makes this good news so, so good, resulting in such great unending joy for those who receive it, is this. Here it is, in King Jesus, the Savior, Christ the Lord, God has given a remedy for our sin. Let me say it again, in King Jesus, the Savior, Christ the Lord, God has given a remedy for our sin. Now, a little bit later, I'll explain the long title for Jesus that I'm using. But for now, please see and please understand that this is really the the central truth, the main point, the big idea of what we see in this story of God's in Luke chapter 2. The good news of great joy proclaimed by the angel is that in King Jesus, the Savior, Christ the Lord, God has given a remedy for our sin. And what I want to do in the bit of time that we have together is just chew on this truth from God's story in Luke chapter 2 for a little bit. And I want to briefly unpack it by highlighting a number of features that we see in this story of God's good news of great joy. So I'm just going to highlight these and, and move along as we go through them. First of all, I would have you notice that this good news of great joy has been revealed. This good news of great joy has been revealed. And as such, it's been proclaimed. If you notice, all that the angel proclaims to the shepherds there in Luke chapter 2 about the birth of Jesus really flows from the whole biblical story of redemptive history. And it helps us understand that Scripture All of Scripture is one unified story of God's remedy in Christ for mankind's sin. God's story of his redeeming work in Jesus Christ. And so all of the various parts and genres of Scripture are woven together into this one story. 
And this is the story that Luke himself, the human author of the Gospel of Luke, that's why it's called the Gospel of Luke, it's this story that he's had a part of revealing in the Gospel that the Spirit of God inspired him to write. And so if you slip back to chapter 1 in Luke, he says there at the very beginning in verses 3 and 4, he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We don't really know who this guy Theophilus was. He was some kind of a political ruling official, but we don't know much beyond that. Uh, but that who, that's who Luke is writing. But of course, this becomes a part of God's word that God is giving to all of us. But he goes on to say in verse 4 that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so everything that he's writing is tying into the whole of Scripture to give certainty regarding God's redemptive work in Jesus Christ. Then at the very end of the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 24, after Jesus has risen from the dead and he appears to his disciples, listen to what he says to them in verse 44 of Luke chapter 24. He says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he's referring there to the entire Old Testament, which now connects, of course, with the New Testament. And Jesus is stating that all of Scripture is about him. And it's about God's remedy for mankind's sin in and through Christ. Now, among other things, this means who really cares about our stories? What really matters is God's story and where we all fit into that. It's all about his story. And so in King Jesus the Savior, Christ the Lord, God has given a remedy for sin. And the first feature we see of this in Luke 2 is that it's been revealed and it's been proclaimed and it's resulted in great joy. Well, a second feature to highlight is notice that this good news of great joy has happened in history. This good news of great joy has happened in history. Now, with what we heard Matt read earlier in the first part of Luke chapter 2 in verses 1 to 7 about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's very evident that this event happened in a specific historical, geographical, cultural, and political moment. And the historical event of Jesus' birth was in the perfect timing of God. The God who powerfully rules and governs all of history to accomplish his sovereign purposes. This is what the Apostle Paul refers to in, in one of his letters in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, when Paul says there, listen to this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This was all in God's timing in the historical event of Jesus' birth. And that event of his birth initiated the fulfillment of biblical history and prophecy. 
which goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 as we read of God's work in creating everything. And so the story of redemptive history in Scripture is just that. It's the history of God's redeeming work in Jesus, which encompasses all of history, which includes our present historical moment. And so what happened in history more than 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born, it both informs and it interprets our present history. And so in King Jesus the Savior, Christ the Lord, God has given a remedy for our sin. Well, let me encourage you to notice third of all, a third feature of this good news of great joy is that it comforts all fears. It comforts all fears. Can we even imagine how astonishing and shocking and terrifying it would have been to experience what these shepherds experienced? Shepherds in the first century were generally viewed as lowly, despised, bottom-of-the-barrel kind of people. And they had very, very, very meager income. They were poor people and despised generally, which would lead us to think that they likely had very low self-images and they probably lived with a kind of a lingering sense of fear given where they fit into society as a whole. And so then on on a seemingly ordinary night, in a very dark and lonely field with just these shepherds and their sheep, suddenly the sky explodes with light and an angel appears to them. And so when verse 9 in Luke 2 says that they were filled with fear, it means that they were undone. They were overwhelmed and they were immobilized with fear. A deep sense of dread and doom with what they were experiencing. But it's interesting, isn't it? The very first words of the angel are, fear not. Immediately followed by this announcement of good news of great joy. Now, every single one of us knows what it is to be afraid, don't we? Whether we admit it to ourselves or not, whether we admit it to others, we know what it is to be afraid. And of course, in this world, while there are many, many things that can provoke our fears, the sum of all of our fears, if we're honest, is that we're afraid to die. We're afraid to die, and and ultimately because we know, again, whether we acknowledge it or not, There's an implicit reality inside of us that knows that we will give an account to God. In fact, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 9, verse 27, says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And so we are at the core, the sum of all of our fears. We're afraid to die. In our hearts, we know that God has created us. We know that we have sinned against him. We have sought to direct our own lives rather than trusting and following and obeying his direction. And because of our sin, we, we know that we deserve judgment. We know that we deserve eternal judgment. And so we're terrified of death. 
terrified of death. But you see, the hope of the gospel, the good news of great joy announced by the angel is that in King Jesus, the Savior, Christ the Lord, God has given a remedy, a remedy for our sin and the consequence of that sin. It's in Hebrews, the book I just mentioned, chapter 2, verse 15, where we learn that Christ came, as it says there, to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You talk about bondage, you talk about slavery, that is a terrifying slavery that we all know something of. And so if we, like those shepherds, receive God's good news of Christ by faith, God abolishes, dissolves, and comforts all our fears. That doesn't mean that even for we who are believers that we don't wrestle with that on a daily basis. We do. And yet again and again and again, that announcement of the angel is what God says to us, fear not. Fear not. As Tim mentioned when he prayed, it's from 1 John chapter 4 that we learn that perfect love casts out fears. And so, in place of fear, God gives great joy. And he also gives great peace, as the angelic host will go on to proclaim there in verse 14, and on earth, peace among those with whom God is pleased. Well, fourth, notice also that this good news of great joy is for you, and it is for all. This good news of great joy is for you, and it is for all. And this is emphatic with what the angel declares there in verses 10 to 12. He says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. So for these lowly, despised shepherds, there's a direct and a personal message from God through this angel that is for them, but is for all the people, which includes all of you and all of you and all of you and me and every human being in the world. He goes on to say in verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. You see, the message of the gospel, that's what this good news is. It's the gospel is deeply personal for each one of us, for every one of you. It's deeply personal, but it's also richly Global. It's richly universal for all people. And the message of salvation through faith in Christ is thus universal for all sinners in need of salvation, which is every single one of us, all who are in need of God's remedy for sin. And you see, God's remedy is his gift that is designed for you and for all who would receive it, a gift that flows from his love. That's why John chapter 3 verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
In fact, later on in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 19, verse 10, we hear Jesus say of himself that he came to seek and to save the lost. And so anyone who knows they're lost, who knows that they're a sinner who's separated from God and alienated from him and in need of the salvation that only he provides can receive this salvation. He came for you, and he declares this to you. And so the question for each of us today, for you today, for me today, is this. Have you received God's gift of salvation in Jesus? Have you received God's only remedy for your sin? Have you believed on Christ the Lord? Have you experienced the great joy of this transforming good news in your own life? Because, friend, in King Jesus, the Savior, Christ the Lord, God has given a remedy for our sin. Well, notice fifth. I've got just a few more here. Notice fifth that this good news of great joy fulfills God's promises. It fulfills God's promises. And this is the point. This point really explains the lengthy title of Jesus that I've been using. King Jesus, the Savior, Christ the Lord. Because you see, all that Jesus is and came to do fulfills God's promises. God's prophecies given in the Old Testament. In other words, Jesus is the promised King. And he is the promised Messiah or I'm sorry, the pro I'll get to that in a moment. He's the promised Savior. In fact, his very name, Jesus, means Yahweh saves. He is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah, the promised anointed one. And he is the promised Lord, the master, the ruler over all. Now, these promises and prophecies are really implicit to the angel's report of Jesus' birth there in chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. And also, these promises and prophecies are woven into the storyline of the entire Old Testament, and they inform the angel's announcement to Mary back in Luke chapter 1 that she would give birth to Jesus. And so if you slip back to chapter 1 again and look at what the angel says to Mary as he's speaking to her about what she will be doing in bearing uh, the incarnate Son of God. In verse 30, and I'll read through verse 33, we hear this. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Well, now when the angel is talking about uh, the throne of David and his kingdom being given to Jesus, He's making reference to what God promised King David all the way back in, in an Old Testament book named 2 Samuel in chapter 7. So the angel is saying all of this in the context of those promises and that prophecy. 
And then a little bit later in Luke chapter 1, down in verses 54 and 55, in the midst of Mary giving praise and thanks to God for all that he has been pleased to choose her to do in bearing uh, the Lord Jesus, among other things, look at what she says there in referencing Old Testament prophecies again and promises. Verse 54, she says, He has, God, has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Now, Abraham goes back hundreds and hundreds of years before King David. And it's in Genesis chapter 12 when God first calls Abraham and makes promises to him that ultimately come to fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that's what Mary is referencing as she is praising and thanking God. And so we see, beloved, that this good news of great joy fulfills God's promises. It's all within the entire storyline of God's redemptive history brought to fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, a sixth feature to highlight is this. Notice that this good news of great joy must be received by faith. This good news of great joy must be received by faith. Now, these lowly, unnamed shepherds in Luke chapter 2 dramatically exemplify true saving faith. They exemplify true faith because they didn't simply agree with the facts of what the angel said and then just went about their own business. That's the way a lot of people think about uh, faith and saving faith, you know, just agreeing with a bunch of facts, but then I just go do whatever I want to do. That is not saving faith, and that is not what these shepherds did. No, they fully embraced what the angel said, and they were transformed by it. And their true faith gave rise to action. They acted on what the angel had declared and promised. And that's what we see beginning in verse 15. And so verse 15 says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. You see, their faith translated into transforming action. They took to heart what God had said through the angel, and they acted on it. And so, friends, be clear about the nature of true saving faith. If you would know and experience this good news of great joy, if you would know and experience God's remedy for your sin in Jesus Christ, you must receive him through saving faith. And so this means not only mentally agreeing with and affirming what God has revealed, that's an aspect of it, but it also means wholeheartedly trusting in Christ and Christ alone, even as we sang earlier. It means turning from, it means repenting from trust in yourself or trust in anything or anyone else. It means trusting only in Christ. 
submitting fully to him and to him alone as your king, as your savior, and your Lord. And so be like those shepherds in true saving faith and believe this good news of great joy about Jesus. Well, two more features I want to highlight. Two more. Notice seventh, this good news of great joy produces eager seeking of God. It produces eager seeking of God. And this really flows from the truth that this good news must be received by faith because this faith is manifest by eagerly seeking God. And so, again, the shepherds exemplify this in verse 15 and following uh, with their faith-filled response to what the angel had proclaimed to them. They eagerly, eagerly sought God. Verse 16 says that they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And so their faith was manifest with this eagerness to obey the angel's word and to seek the Lord. And what an example this is, really, of, of what happens when a person is converted through faith in Christ. When they come to true saving faith, when they are born again. When that happens, the entire course and trajectory of their life is transformed. It's permanently altered and they begin seeking God. There's a newfound hunger and an eagerness to know and to walk with God, which gets expressed in wanting to read and study and apply God's word. There's a newfound hunger to pray and to praise God and to give thanks to him. There's a newfound hunger and an eagerness to be with God's people in the life and the worship of a local church and to lay hold of all of God's mercy and grace in Christ and to seek to obey him and to proclaim him to others. Dare I say there is a great joy in this eager seeking of God. And that's just what we're told in verse 20 there of chapter 2, that the shepherds experienced this great joy when they returned from seeing the baby Jesus. We're told the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. It's interesting. Their life was totally transformed, but they still went back to presumably being shepherds, and yet in a radically different way than they had been prior to the announcement of the angel and their response of faith. They were tasting, they were tasting the truth that in King Jesus the Savior, Christ the Lord, God has given a remedy for our sin. Well, the last feature I would highlight, number eight, is this. Notice that this good news of great joy glorifies God. This good news of great joy glorifies God. And you see, this is what these lowly unnamed shepherds were doing in verse 20, right? They were glorifying God in the coming of Jesus Christ. They were praising him. They weren't returning from their nativity visit in Bethlehem with thoughts about their own greatness or their own goodness or their own sense of worth. They weren't, you know, patting themselves on their backs and giving high fives to each other and praising their own efforts and works of self-righteousness. No, they weren't doing any of that. They were praising God and glorifying God alone in the fullness of all of his saving mercies in Jesus that had been announced to them. And then they literally, physically saw 
Jesus as an infant, as an infant. And they were really, in that sense, joining the chorus of angelic heavenly multitude that they had heard proclaim glory, glory to God in the highest. Gloria in excelsis Deo, as the song declares. They were glorifying and praising God because in King Jesus the Savior, Christ the Lord, God has given a remedy for sin. Beloved, it's very true. The more we understand and embrace the good news of great joy of God's saving work in Jesus Christ, the more we embrace and rejoice in it by faith, concurrently, the more we abase ourselves and glorify God alone. Because this had nothing to do with us. It had everything to do with God. And that's the point of what's being emphasized there in Luke chapter 2. To God be the glory. We could never save ourselves. It is all God's doing. In our sin, we are helpless. We are hopeless. We are completely incapable. We are, as the scriptures say in in Ephesians chapter 2, for instance, in one place, we're spiritually dead. We're unresponsive. Dead people can't do anything. And spiritually, we cannot do anything. It's all of God. It's all of his grace. This is why Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one may boast. I think God is putting an exclamation point on that with his purposes to reveal these things to these unnamed, lowly, despised shepherds. From a worldly standpoint, they were nothing. They were nobodies. And yet they were objects of God's saving love. And they gave praise to God because that's what this good news of great joy is all about. It glorifies God. So I hope you see something just in briefly looking at this of how breathtaking and life-changing this good news of great joy is. It's been revealed. It happened in history. It comforts all fears It is for you and it is for everyone. It fulfills God's promise. It must be received by faith. It produces eager seeking of God and it glorifies God. Well, in light of all of this, I would tell you that in 1866, a faithful Christian woman from London whose name was Catherine Hankey, she wrote a poem entitled, The Old, Old Story. And she was in her 30s and had become seriously ill. And it was during her long recovery that her sonnet took form. Now, some of you may know and be familiar with two well-known hymns that are based on Hanke's poem. One of those hymns is entitled, Tell Me the Old, Old Story. And the other is, I Love to Tell the story. And what I'd like to do is, in closing out our time, is to share the second part of her poem. She had written it in two different parts. The first part was called The Story Wanted. 
And the second part is called the story told. And so I want to bring this to a close by sharing the second part as Miss Hankey summarizes the old, old story of God's remedy in Christ for our sin. And it goes like this. You ask me for the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. You want the old, old story and nothing else will do. Indeed, I cannot wonder, it always seems so new. I often wish that someone would tell it me each day. I never should get tired of what they had to say. Oh, but I am wasting moments. Oh, how shall I begin to tell the old, old story how Jesus saves from sin? Listen, and I will tell you, God, help both you and me and make the old, old story his message unto thee. Once in a pleasant garden, God placed a happy pair, and all within was peaceful and all around was fair. But oh, they disobeyed him. The one thing he denied, they longed for, took, and tasted. They ate it, and they died. And yet in his love and pity, at once the Lord declared, how man, though lost and ruined, might after all be spared. For one of Eve's descendants, not sinful like the rest, should spoil the work of Satan, and man be saved and blessed. He should be a son of Adam, but son of God as well, and bring a full salvation from sin and death and hell. Hundreds of years were over. Adam and Eve had died, the following generation, and many more beside. At last, some shepherds watching beside their flocks at night were startled in the darkness by strange and heavenly light. You may make the connection that she's referencing Luke chapter 2 there. They were startled by this strange and heavenly light. One of the holy angels had come from heaven above to tell the true, true story of Jesus and his love. He came to bring glad tidings. You need not, must not fear. For Christ, your newborn Savior, lies in the village near. And many other angels took up the story then. To God on high be glory, goodwill, and peace to men. And was it true, that story? They went at once to see and found him in a manger and knew that it was he. He, who the, he whom the Father promised so many ages past had come to save poor sinners. Yes, he had come at last. That was indeed his purpose, to seek and save the lost, although he knew beforehand, knew all that it would cost. He lived a life most holy. His every thought was love, and every action showed it to man and to God above. His path in life was lowly. He was a working man who knows the poor man's trials so well as Jesus can. His last three years were lovely. He could no more be hid, and time and strength would fail me to tell the good he did. He gave away no money. He had none to give. But he had power of healing, and he made dead people live. He did kind things so kindly. It seemed his heart's delight to make poor people happy from morning until night. He always seemed at leisure for everyone who came, however tired or busy, they found him just the same. 
He heard each tale of sorrow with an attentive ear and took away each burden of suffering and sin or fear. He was a man of sorrows. He, and when he gave relief, he gave it like a brother, someone acquainted with grief. Such was the man, Christ Jesus, the friend of sinful man. But hush, the tale grows sadder. I'll tell it if I can. This gentle, holy Jesus, without a spot or stain, by wicked hands was taken and crucified and slain. So look, look, if you can bear it. Look at your dying Lord, standing near the cross and watch him. Behold the Lamb of God. His hands and feet are pierced. He cannot hide his face. And cruel men stand staring in crowds about the place. They laugh at him and mock him. They tell him to come down and leave that cross of suffering and change it for a crown. Why? Why did he bear their mockings? Was he the mighty God? And could he have destroyed them with one almighty word? Yes, Jesus could have done it. But let me tell you why. He would not use his power but chose to stay and die. He had become our surety, which means a substitute. And what we could not pay, he paid instead and for us on that one dreadful day. For our sins he suffered, for our sins he died, and not for ours only, but all the world's beside. And now the work is finished, the sinner's debt is paid, because on Christ the righteous the sin of all was laid. Oh, wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. The door of heaven is open and you may enter in. For God released our surety to show the work was done and Jesus' resurrection declared the victory won. And now he has ascended and sits upon the throne to be a prince and savior and claim us for, our own, for his own. But when he left his people, he promised them to send the comforter to teach them and guide them to the end. And that same Holy Spirit is with us to this day, ready now to teach us the new and the living way. Friends, this is the old, old story. Say, did you take it in? This wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin? Do you at heart believe it? Do you believe it's true? and meant for every sinner and therefore meant for you. Then take this great salvation Jesus loves to give. Believe and you receive it. Believe and you shall live. And if this simple message has now brought peace to you, make known the old, old story for others need it too. Let everybody see it that Christ has made you free and if he sets them longing, say, Jesus died for thee. And soon, soon, our eyes shall see him. And in our home above, we'll sing the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Friends, that is the old, old story that is unchanging. It's never ending. It's the always relevant story for you and for me and for all of humanity today. 
It's the old, old story of Jesus and his love. He who is still seeking to save those who are lost in their sins. It's the good news of great joy proclaimed to the shepherds at Christ's birth and proclaimed to you and proclaimed to me right now. That in King Jesus, the Savior, Christ the Lord is given a remedy for our sin. And so even in this life, if we receive bad news of great sorrow, as we all have and as we all inevitably will in various ways, whenever that happens, it's the good news of great joy in Christ, you see, that tethers us to heaven and to eternity in Christ and enables us to endure and persevere even through painful things in this life. In a few moments, we're going to sing Joy to the World. We'll close our service with that song. And the first verse of that song includes these familiar words, Let earth receive her king, and let every heart prepare him room. So I would just ask again, have you received King Jesus the Savior, Christ the Lord? Have you prepared room for him in your heart? Have you humbled your heart before King Jesus with confession of your sin, repentance, and faith in him alone, eager and joyful to trust him as Savior, to submit to him as Lord and kings and King. May this good news of great joy be yours in fullest measure today. Let me lead us in prayer. Oh, Father, may you bear the fruit in our lives that you intend to bear for your good purposes and for our greatest joy. Lord, may that be true for each one, that they would know, that they would taste and see the fullness of, of this joy in, in embracing the good news that you've given through faith in all that you've revealed in Christ through your word. We trust you to work for your good pleasure to that end. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.